A long, long time, y'all. In fact, if you look at the top of your study sheet, uh, this is now our 164th shot at this thing. And believe it or not, and I, I hate the tape ministry because of this, because you can always play the tape back and you know diss me out real big, but I'm thinking that we can do this by at least 168. And then what you can do is there's 168 hours in a week, and then, you know, if just one week of your life, you want to just listen to the book of Revelation, you can just get the series, pop those tapes in, and for one solid week, just have the book of Revelation taught to you. And all the people that will ever do that, stand on your head right now. That's never going to happen. But we, we've been at it for a long time, and uh, we are closing down. We're in a very exciting part of the, the, the book of Revelation, where we'll be picking back up this morning in chapter 21. But why don't you go ahead and turn there, and uh, as you are, let me just take uh, a second to, to review. A lot of you that are here this morning are people that uh, have become a part of this church, or you've been attending here since uh, we've gotten away from this study of the book of Revelation, and so this book is somewhat uh, intimidating to you. Others of you, it's been a little while, and so why don't we just take just a second to look back over the, an overview of this entire book of Revelation. As you can see, we've depicted up on the screen and on your study sheet the fact that there are 22 chapters in this book. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of ground covered in those, those 22 chapters. In fact, uh, to this point in our study of the book of Revelation, we've actually covered 3,000 years of human history. Unbelievable. I mean... Uh, just uh, in this one book of the Bible to get to chapter 20, and that's before eternity even begins. But there is a, there's a principle of Bible study that we've tried to use as, uh, to, to help us in this study of the book of Revelation. It's a very, very important one. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, the verse says this, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing... The word of truth. Now, there's a lot of stuff in that verse, but one of the things that it tells us is that if we are going to understand the word of God, it's going to take study. We're going to have to give the diligent exercise of study. Now, the reason that we've got to do that is because what God really wants out of all of that study is for us to rightly divide the word of truth. And since He's given us that admonition, it would seem that it is possible to wrongly divide the word of truth. And there's a lot of that that goes on. But the way that you keep from that, according to what 2 Timothy 2.15 says, is through diligent study. Now, as you begin to take a book of the Bible, like the book of Revelation, you begin to apply the principle of Bible study from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. What you begin to find is rightly dividing the word of truth is not up to me. It's not up to you. It's not for us to come to a book of the Bible and say, well, you know, I'm going to just make a little division here. If you study that book, what you'll find is that God makes his own divisions in that book. And if you were to take the time and you were to give diligent study to the book of Revelation, and you were to pour yourself into that book and read it and read it and read it, what you'd begin to see is there's an, an event that takes place two times in this book. Something significant takes place two times, and that is heaven opens two times in this book. The first time heaven opens, somebody goes up 
The second time heaven opens, somebody comes down. Somebody goes up in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and John, who is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ, sees heaven open, he hears a voice, and a trumpet sounds, and he is caught up off of this planet into heaven. And what we find in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 is where the placement of the rapture is in this book, which is going to help us immensely in terms of rightly dividing it. The next time heaven opens, somebody comes down. That's in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. And what it does is it shows us the second coming of Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ on a white horse comes out of heaven with the armies of God following behind him. And so we're able to get our bearings, but what we see here is through those two events, what God has done is he's divided the book of Revelation into three sections. Now something very important as you're going to begin to look at these divisions in the book of Revelation is that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, what John says, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, he's not talking about that he was just having a real, you know, spiritual day one Sunday. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the Spirit of God had catapulted him ahead in time to the time of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a very significant event in, in, in the Scripture. It's what picks up after the rapture of the church and includes the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ, and on into the, the millennium. That's the day of the, the Lord. And you see, what John is saying is I was catapulted forward in time by the Spirit of God to the time of the day of the Lord. So as he is told to write in three tenses in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19 about that which was and is and is to come, he's writing this from the standpoint of somebody that is standing out, uh, even what is future for us, just a, probably just a few years and the present to him is that tribulation period. So what we find is the way that the book is divided is the past is chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that's the church age. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1 is where the rapture takes place. And the church is no longer mentioned in the book of Revelation. And then that moves us into the tribulation period. And what he does is he shows us from chapter 4 to 19, he shows us four accounts of the tribulation period. First of all, through the opening of seven seals. Secondly, through the sounding of seven trumpets. Thirdly, the revealing of seven personalities. And fourthly, the pouring of seven vials. And then he comes to chapter 20, and this is the future. And in chapter 20, it's the millennium. Chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth that we'll be looking at this morning. And then uh, chapter 22 is eternity. Now, the last time we were in our study of the book of Revelation, we were in, in chapter 20, and uh, I, we don't have the time this morning to go back and recreate all of it, but I'm just telling you guys, where chapter 20 came to a conclusion, it was a freaky, freaky passage. Because in, in chapter 20, the tribulation period which is horrific in itself. You talk about the, the pouring or the opening of the seven seals and the sounding of the seven trumpets and those personalities and the pouring of the seven vials full of the wrath of God. L listen, Jesus said about that time, there's never been a time like it before it. There'll never be a time like it after it. It is a time of intense suffering and tribulation on this planet. And by the time we got to chapter 20, the tribulation period was over. 
We had the, the second coming of Christ had taken place in Revelation 19. And then we had moved into the millennium. And at the end of the millennium, there was this, uh, Satan was loosed from the bottomless pit for this little season. And then he, he led a revolt of those who were born in the millennium. And there were millions and millions of people, even after seeing the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of its glory on this earth, who still chose the wrong way. But when we were in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11... If you're going to understand just the the freakiness and the awesomeness of of what was taking place, look, look in verse 11 of chapter 20. John says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it. And he said, Because of him that sat on it and, and that great throne, the face of the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was no place for them. Now, do you know what that means? It means exactly what it says. That in the fullness of the great white throne and Him that sat on it, the fullness of God revealed in all of His glory and judgment. The very earth upon which you and I are sitting this morning and the heavens in which we find ourselves on this earth in the midst of those heavens... This earth and those heavens see the awesomeness of that thing and flee away from His presence. There's so many people today that talk about, well, you know what, if I do have to stand before God and He casts me into hell, at least I'll be with my friends. You know what? The reason that you could make a statement like that is because you've never really understood the awesomeness of the God that you will ultimately stand before. So unbelievably awesome. The very earth and the heavens flee away. And when you see that, you understand what John begins to say in chapter 21. And look at it with me. John says, and I saw... This, this, isn't, a, this isn't a dream that he was having... This isn't a a vision that he received. He was literally catapulted forward in time to actually behold these things with his eyes. He's already seen what has not yet taken place. Because God allowed him to enter into that dimension of the Godhead where he is past, present, and future and all of those at the same time. You say, I don't get that. I don't either. But John has already seen this. This is the seventh time in the book of Revelation where he says, and I saw. You can bank on this. This is going to happen because John's already seen it. He's already experienced it. It's already happened. It's as good as done. And he says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. 
I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And now, Lord, I pray that you would take this passage and I pray that you would use it to change every single one of us. Some people need to have their destiny changed today by submitting to your Lordship. Others of us need to, to see into that eternal realm and, and begin to focus on that which will last forever. And I pray that for all of us today, you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, through that brief little passage that we read there in, in chapter 21, and if we were to continue on into chapter 22, you know what, if you're a student of the Word of God, you'd come through this passage and you look at that and you say, you know what, man, it, 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 it seems like I, I, I've heard about this before. And you have. Because do you realize what we've just entered into as we've come into chapter 21 is we're back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. Where we are is where God intended this whole thing to be all along. But because of sin, we've been in this mess for the last 6,000 years and now we come to this time when there is no more time. And you know where we are? We're right back where we started. And everything is the way that God intended. And there's no more sin in the whole picture. And, and when you begin to look at this thing, it is rather incredible how the book of Genesis and how the book of Revelation are so intertwined. In fact, in Genesis we read, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and as we just saw this morning in Genesis, or Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, we find the first Adam with his wife Eve in the Garden of Eden reigning over the, uh, all the earth. And in Revelation, we find the last Adam, as the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, with his wife, the church, in the city of God, reigning over the entire universe. In Genesis, God created the sun, the moon, the day and the night. In Revelation 21, 22, it says, There shall be no night there. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. In Genesis, the tree of life is denied to sinful man, and you... From that point in the book of Genesis, the tree of life, just totally, the Bible's totally silent about it until you come to Revelation chapter 22. And what you find is the tree of life yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In Genesis, man hears God say, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In Revelation, man will hear God say, and there shall be no more curse. In Genesis, Satan appears to torment man. In Revelation, Satan shall be tormented forever and ever. 
In Genesis, man's first home was beside a river. In Revelation, man's eternal home will be beside a river. Chapter 22 and verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Genesis ends with a believer in Egypt lying in a coffin. And Revelation ends with all believers reigning forever and eternity where there shall be no more death. And listen, what we're seeing right there is what makes the Bible separate from every other book on the face of this planet because what God is showing you is that this book is eternal. This book ends where it begins. This book begins where it ends. It, it, it's, a, it's a complete circle, the emblem of eternity, and leads us, as we're seeing in chapter 21 and 22 today, this eternal state for those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 21, God is God's showing John the end of all things and yet the, the beginning of all things. What I'm referring to this morning by way of our title is God's New World Order. Uh, you know, uh, for the last oh, several decades or so, I think jo- George Bush, uh, dad, is the one that kind of coined the phrase uh, for us, he started talking back in in the 80s about the new world order, the new world order, and Clinton picked up on it, and, and you see this all the time, they're talking about the, the new world order, and what the new world order is, is that time that man is longing for and has always longed for, where there would be global peace amongst all of the peoples and all of the nations of the world, and you know what, there is no such thing as man's new world order. It is not going to happen. Man cannot pull it off. 6,000 years of human history should teach us that, but man is a slow learner. We can't get it through our thick heads that it is not going to happen until God sets up His new world order. And that's what John's describing for us. And I want you to look with me this morning at some of the characteristics of God's new world order. First of all, there will be a new place to dwell There'll be a new place to dwell. And let's look at the places that John lists here that are to be inhabited. First of all, he mentions the new heaven. The new heaven. Now, if you're going to understand this thing of the new heaven, please do bear in mind the fact that the Bible has taught us that there are actually three heavens. Okay, In the same way that we would refer to God as the three in one, That same way, the heavens are three, and yet they're one. As we look at the Word of God, there is, first of all, what is referred to as the first heaven. It's what most of us today, you know, don't talk about the first heaven. What we refer to in our culture is, we call this the atmosphere. The atmosphere. And what we're talking about is from the ground to the clouds. That, biblically, is the the first heaven. It's where the birds and the airplanes fly and the smog goes and all that kind of stuff. Then there's the second heaven that we would refer to today as outer space. And it's where the sun, moon, and stars are. And then there's the third heaven, which is the abode of God. It's very simply where God lives. In, In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul relates an experience that he had. He was probably uh, in Derby at the time. I don't know for sure if you remember on his missionary journeys that in Derby, 
he was stoned and he was left for dead. And it was probably during that time that he was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he said, you know what? I had this experience. I don't know if I was in the body or I was out of the body. I don't know what was going on. Actually, I didn't really give two flips about it, but all I do know is I was in the third heaven. And he goes on from there to talk about the fact that the things that he saw when he was there, he said it would be against the law for me to even write it to you. God wouldn't permit him to to even explain the things that he saw, but he was in that third heaven, as you see there at the end of verse 2 in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And, And do understand this about that place, that it is a... It is a real place, okay? This is not just some, some nebulous, you know, ethereal little thing that we've created somehow in our minds. No, this is a very, very real place. In Psalm 148, it's a psalm of, it's a psalm of praise. I mean, it's, it's, it's big, man. I mean, the psalmist is just, basically what he's saying is, let all of the universe praise the Lord. And what he does is he walks you through, in this one passage, he walks you through all three of these heavens that we just described there in, uh, on your study sheet. Uh, look at it, Psalm 148 and verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Okay, now he's talking about the, the third heaven here. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Now he's going to move down into that second heaven in verse 3 praise ye him sun and moon praise him all ye stars of light now watch verse 4 praise him ye heavens of heavens and ye waters that be above the heavens what in the world is is that and just file it because we're going to come back to that in just a little while let them praise the name of the lord for he commanded that they were created He hath also established them forever and ever and hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord. Here's the first heaven. From the earth, ye dragons, and all deets. Okay? So you see all three of these heavens in this this one passage here. But in Revelation chapter 21, God revealed and allowed John to see that time when there is going to be the most unbelievable change, this this transcendental change that is going to take place in the heavens. Now, understand this. John's not the first one to to write about this thing. Isaiah prophesied this hundreds and hundreds of years before John ever saw it in Revelation 21. In Isaiah 65 and verse 17, God said through Isaiah his prophet, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And I'm telling you, this is hard for us finite-minded people to get into our brains. That everything that is a part of this earth and in the heavens that we're beholding, this is all just temporary. This is why Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. And what he, God is revealing to us is at this time in Revelation chapter 21, none of the stuff from this earth and from all of the things that we see around us, none of it is even, it's going to be so incredible, none of it is even going to come into our minds. Peter also talked about it in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Look at it in verse 9. He says, the, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the passage previous to verse 9, what he's been talking about there, is scoffers who come in the last days who say, yeah, 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 yeah. You Christian people have been talking about Jesus coming back forever and ever, and where is he? And what he's saying here is, listen, God's not slack concerning his promise. When God makes a promise, you can take that pup to the bank because it's going to happen. And what Peter is revealing is the reason that he hasn't come back to this point is not because he can't keep his promise. It's because he's long-suffering. And he doesn't want anyone to spend eternity separated from him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, listen, this is a great day for God to begin to speak to your heart about who He is and about what He wants to do in your life. What He's looking for is for you to come to the place that you're brought to a place of repentance. What that is, is all of us, the Bible declares, are going our own way, which is the way opposite of God. Repentance is coming to a place to where we realize that and we're stopped in our tracks and we turn and by faith call upon the name of Jesus Christ to remove our sinfulness. And he says, listen, that's the only reason he hasn't come back to this point. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And again, I remember that, that day of the Lord is a, a general term that picks up after the rapture, includes the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ and the millennium, up to that final revolt that we talked about to where... Everybody stands at that great white throne there in chapter 20. Now, go on in verse 10. In the which, as we just saw in Revelation 20, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, the heavens, the earth, and all of the works in the earth, because all that's going to come to an end. Watch what Peter says to the inspiration of the Spirit. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? He's saying, guys, when we come to the realization that all of what we see is passing, it ought to strike something on the inside of us that gets us living past the temporal and living into that eternal realm. Verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for, here it is, new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, and He can't get off of this, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace, without spot and blameless. And it goes back to what we've been talking about for the last several weeks now. In light of eternity, it ought to cause something to strike on the inside of us that says, I'm no longer going to live for the temporal. I'm going to live for that which is eternal. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews also talks about this time that John is, is seeing. Verse 10 of chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews it says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they, shall, they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. 
but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. So this, this new heaven and this new earth that John is seeing in Revelation 21 is not something new to the Bible. And you know, I think that we can all understand why God would create a, a, a new earth because of all of the junk that's taken place on this planet from this, the earth. I, I think we understand that. But, but why? Why a new, new heaven? You know what? There's a, there's a, a little, little verse that God tucked away back there in the Old Testament. In fact, just the last half of a verse that speaks incredible volumes when it comes to understanding this thing of the new heaven. In Job chapter 15, in verse 15, just look at the second part of the verse. It says, Yea, the heavens are not clean in His sight. Because I'll remind you that the book of, he- or the book of Ephesians chapter 6 lets us know that we're in a warfare, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places, and rulers in the darkness of the world. You see, in that second heaven that we call outer space, the prince of the power of the air and his network of demons are all in that expanse. And God says, make sure that you understand, the heavens are not clean in my sight. And maybe, just maybe, that's why it is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It's the second day in the creative week. And you you remember how it all shakes down in, in that creative week? First day... You know, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light and said it was, it was good. And then he comes to the third day, he does his creation thing, and he steps back from it and says, I'll tell you, that's good. Fourth day, he steps back from it and says, that's good. Fifth day, that's good. Sixth day, when he created man, he says, that's good. Have you ever noticed that there's one day in there? come through the whole deal and God never says it's good it just happens to be in that passage there in Genesis where he's talking about in that arena of the first and the second heavens and he says in Job they're not clean in my sight he creates them here look at verse 8 and God called the firmament heaven and he comes to the conclusion of that day, and you don't find any statement there of God saying, it was good. So, the first place to be inhabited in eternity is the new heaven. Then, secondly, there is the new earth. And, again, as I mentioned just a, a, a few minutes ago here, I don't think it's difficult for any of us to see why it is that God would create a new earth. I mean, it was from this planet that we, as human beings, chose to rebel against our holy creator. In Genesis chapter 4, man begins to shed man's blood on the face of this planet. And this has been a bloody planet for the last 6,000 years. 
This has been a, a, a planet where the most incredible atrocities have happened against man against man and man against God. All, and again, I don't think anybody has to, to stretch their, their mind to understand why a new earth, but if there were no other reason. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 that Satan is the God of this world and because he's had his carcass on this planet, God says, I'm going to clean this thing up and I'm not going to enter into an eternity where there's been bloodshed. I'm not going to enter into an eternity where Satan has had anything whatsoever to do with, with anything that's there. And then thirdly, there is a place that will be inhabited in eternity that is referred to as the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem. And this is what John talks about in verse 2. Look at it. He says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. That would be the third heaven. But, but now watch this. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, just look at that last phrase one, one more time, would you? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, now what does he see? He sees a city. The name of the city is called what? New, New Jerusalem. And he says it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And, and if you look down in, in the same chapter, look at verse 9 at the end of the verse. It, it lets you know that this, this city is the Lamb's wife. Now, who is the Lamb, y'all? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? And, and, and if, if just based on everything that we've learned in this church from studying the Word of God together, if I were to say to you, who is the bride of Christ? You would say the, the church. But what this passage says is that the Lamb's wife is a city is referred to specifically as the New Jerusalem. And that city is the Lamb's wife. But that city now has been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, just think about that for just a second. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus was talking with His disciples and He says, Fellas, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Watch now. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Okay, now, now try to get this in your, in your mind, okay? And we're going to go into detail on this next week because the passage tells us to. But now get this in your mind. Our Lord went to go prepare a place for us, His, his bride. Okay? He prepared a place for His bride. The place that He went to prepare, we, we know now what that place is, don't we? It, it's the holy city. It's the new... It's the new Jerusalem, and he's prepared this place as a bride adorned for her husband. And you know what is just so incredible, guys? You know what we're going to see in Revelation 21 and 22 as we continue through this chapter? 
that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is prepared as a bride. And the Lord is there right now preparing a place that is everything that He wants us, His bride, to be as we're preparing ourselves for Him, our husband. Let me say it to you this way. The new Jerusalem is a perfect replica of everything that God has called us to be as His bride. And what we're going to see, beginning in verse 9 through chapter 22 and verse 5, is God just showing us everything that He wants us to be spiritually in a physical way through this city that is referred to as His bride. We are the bride of Christ, but that city reflects everything that God has called us to be. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, what it says, we've been espoused to Him as our one husband. Revelation 19, chapter 7, says that what we're doing is we are making ourselves ready. You know what we're doing? We are preparing ourselves as the bride, as the husband is preparing that place for us as a bride. That's the, the new Jerusalem. But now let's, we've looked at the, the places to be inhabited in eternity, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Let's talk, take just a second to talk about the inhabitants of the places. The inhabitants of the places. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God gives us another major principle of of Bible study in the midst of teaching some things in this passage. But what what he does for us is he outlines for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 32 three groups of people that you better make sure that you keep your eye on and that you keep classified the same way that God keeps classified through the Word of God. He says... Give none offense neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Now the way that God views humanity is He sees us in those three classifications. There are Jews, and He deals this way with the Jews. There are Gentiles, and He has dealt this way with the Gentiles. There is the church of God, and He deals this way with His church. Now, we talked at the beginning about rightly dividing the word of truth. If you miss that principle, you might very well wrongly divide the word of truth because we don't, as the church of God, go try to claim promises given to the Jews. And in the same way, the Gentiles can't claim promises intended for us, the church of God, because God works with us differently. But there's these three classifications of people that are seen all through the word of God that God just puts right succinctly here in 1 Corinthians chapter. 10 and verse 32, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God. And let me show you how this relates to the, where each of these groups of people will be inhabiting in, in eternity. First of all, the Jews will inhabit the new earth. The Gentiles will inhabit the new heaven. And we, the church, will inhabit that city that is an exact replica of us the new Jerusalem. Now, as we move on in chapter 21 and into 22, we're going to see all of that very specifically. I'm just wanting to give it to you there right now. So first of all, there will be a new place to dwell. And then secondly, there will be a new fellowship with God. There will be a new fellowship 
as we enter into this eternal state, there will be a new fellowship with God. And look at verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And so we see here that there is this incredible fellowship that he's talking about. We'll talk further about that in just a, just a moment. But what I want you to see, first of all, in this new fellowship with God is that man's barriers to God during this time are totally removed. Man's barriers to God are totally removed. Now let's talk first of all about the barrier of the sea. The barrier of the sea. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. When we were back in, in verse 1 of chapter 21, there's a little phrase there that I, we just kind of breezed over, we didn't make mention of, but it's a very, very significant phrase in terms of this new kind of fellowship that we're going to have with God in eternity. Look at verse, 20, verse 1 again. He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new, new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And, and here's this little strange statement. And there was no more sea. Well, there you go. There's no more sea. And if you, if you look in the, the commentaries at this point, I think probably 99% of them are going to say, you know, the, the earth that we're presently living in right now is comprised of two-thirds of water, and, and that's true, and, and I'm sure that this new earth is not going to, you know, be like this one and be comprised of two-thirds water like that. But do you really think that's what he's talking about there? I mean, do you think that was significant enough for God to, to throw in there and talking about the new heaven and the new earth? Oh, and <clears throat> there's no more sea. And you remember, I, I, just a minute ago, I told you to just file in there, in, in Revelation, or, uh, Psalm 148, those first four verses. You remember verse 4? Look at it again. Praise Him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. And, and what the, the psalmist is talking about I mean, if we just go to the Bible and let the Bible be the Bible, is that above that first and second heaven, there's water that is somewhere out there past what we would understand as, as outer space. In Job chapter 9, beginning in verse 5, it says, "...which removeth the mountains, and they know not which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth..." The sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and treadeth, watch now, upon the waves of the sea. Oh yeah, I remember when Jesus was here on the planet. Remember when he walked on the sea? It's not the sea that he's talking about there, because if you look in verse 9, all of those names there, you know what those are? Those are constellations. And there's water above those constellations out there, according to what the Word of God says. In Genesis chapter 1, we were here just a, a second ago, because we were coming back, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on that whole deal about the firmament and the heaven and all of that. But, but watch this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. 
And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then it moves into the first day. Then we move into the second day in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, and watch this, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, okay, this, this expanse of space, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so, and God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So he's talking about waters below and above the heavens. And if there's anybody thinking, well, that's just the waters on the earth. No, that's verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. In Job 26, in verse 7, it says, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place. You know, and we don't have time to go into this, but heaven, the, the abode of God, is in which direction, y'all? It's in, the, it's in the north. He stretches out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it, he hath compassed the waters with bounds, watch this, until the day and night come to an end. Anybody know when day and night come to an end? Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 22. And what God says is there's going to be something that is going to be bound up. There's waters, a, a sea, if you will. There's going to be bound there and is going to block the throne until there's no more day, until there's no more night. And something very significant, in Job chapter 38 and verse 30, about this water, these seas, the waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. You know, the cosmonauts went up years ago into space, and you remember what they said when they came back? Hey, there ain't no God, y'all. We were up there, and he ain't there. And you know what? You're never going to see him because as we saw in Job 26, the face of that throne is hid by those waters. And what he lets us know here is that there is a stone in the face of the deep. Right there at the top is frozen. And if you go to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6, John gets there and he's writing and he doesn't you know, know all the terminology to maybe use to pull it all together, but he looks at it and he says, and before the throne there was a, a sea of glass like unto crystal, like maybe frozen water. And, and you see, what we what we find here is that when there's no more day or night, when the new heaven and the new earth arrive, there's no more sea, God says. There's no more barrier. And what he sees is he sees that new Jerusalem. He sees it coming down out of heaven, coming from God. And there's, there's no more barrier there. You know what a great picture of it 
is on the day that Jesus was crucified. You know, there were quite a few miracles that were taking place on, on that day. Right there at noon, the Bible says it went completely black. It was an earthquake. And you remember what took place over in the temple? Something really significant. You remember how the temple was laid out? We don't have time to go into all the detail of this. But the way that temple was laid out is there was an outer court, and then you moved into the holy place. But separating the holy place from the holy of holies, there was a, there was a big curtain that was called a, a veil. And listen, when Jesus was being crucified on that cross, when they went into the temple, something significant had happened to that veil. The veil had been rent from top to bottom, signifying the fact that God had made His way through man, through what Jesus Christ had done in coming to this planet in an earthly body and through His death, burial, and resurrection that just took place on that hill over there. And in the temple, God was saying, the barrier has been removed. But listen, when we come into the new heaven and the new earth, the barrier of the sea has been removed. And not only the barrier of the sea, but the barrier of the body. And I want to get held up on this, but Romans chapter 8 talks about the fact that though in our spirit, in our soul, we have had redemption, what we're all still waiting for right now is the redemption of our, anybody know? Our body. The redemption of our body. And listen, at this time, the barrier of our body is is removed. You know what keeps us hindered in our worship of God? You know what keeps us hindered and keeps us earthbound? The fact that we are still living in this body that has not yet been fully redeemed. Yes, our soul and spirit has, but what we're waiting for, the last part, we're waiting for the redemption of our body. And at that time when there's no day or no night, the barrier of the sea where the throne of God is has been removed. The barrier of this body has been removed and then letter b god's presence to man is totally released first of all man's barriers to god are totally removed but b god's presence to man is totally released and that's what he's talking about in verse three where the the angel i presume the one with a great voice out of heaven says behold the tabernacle of god is with men and he will dwell with them And they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And listen, right now, you and I that know the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, God walks in us, we're His sons, and and we have fellowship with Him, but we're still trapped in these bodies. What God is saying is, listen, there is coming a day, guys, in that new heaven, that new earth, that new Jerusalem, there is coming a day when there is going to be a whole different kind of fellowship that you're going to experience with your God. Because He's not just going to be in you, but He's going to tabernacle with you. And there's not going to be anything to hinder that relationship. We we constantly are talking about a personal, intimate, love relationship that God wants to have with us now. But the best of us are are trapped in this body and we're, we're struggling every day in our relationship with God. And yet at this time, all of the barriers are totally removed and God's presence is totally released to us and we experience, listen, for all of eternity, an existence with God and God with us. There's so much more than our our, our minds right now in this room could conceive, certainly more than I could ever express through 
human vocabulary. Just an incredible, incredible thing. But not only will there be a new place to dwell and a new fellowship that we'll experience with God, but number three, there'll be a new kind of existence. A new kind of existence. When we come to verse 4, this angel with the great voice is still speaking about this time. He's talked about our fellowship in verse 3, and now he talks about this new kind of existence that we're going to have. And oh, would you you let your heart listen to this? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away, praise the Lord. And so the angel has been saying, it's going to be different, guys! It's going to be different then! And then then the king of kings speaks up from the throne in verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And that's what we've got to look forward to. Five things there will be no more when God makes all things new. First of all, there will be no more tears. Verse 4 says that God shall wipe away all tears. Tears are silent communication of grief. And I make that distinction because he's going to talk about crying in just a minute. You know the difference between sometimes tears stream down your face, other times you're you're crying. He says there's going to be no more tears. What, What a blessing it is. The book of Revelation has already taught us that God has already taken the tears of His saints and He holds them in His bottle. But at that point, No more tears, y'all. Can you imagine that kind of existence? And in light of everything that's gone on in this church in the last several years, all the dying that's gone on, what an incredible thing. No more death. The Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, the sting of death. And we've felt that sting, haven't we, in this church? No more. No more sting. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 calls death the last enemy that shall be destroyed. And it will be destroyed when we come to this place of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Then thirdly, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. You know what? Everything that he's just described about that existence is really the existence that man has wanted since the beginning of time. Ever since sin entered into the world, you know what we've been trying to get? We've been trying to figure out how to have an eternal life so that there's no more dying. We've been trying to figure out how to go through life without the grief of tears and crying. We've been trying to figure out how to go through life without sorrow and without pain. And you know what? It is not ever going to happen because sin is still on this planet and because Satan is still the God of this world. But when God finally deals with him and time is no more, the kind of existence he explains to us is, guys, I'll wipe away every tear and you'll never cry again. There'll be no more death, no more gravesides, no more hearses, no more funeral services, no more sorrow, no more pain. It's all over. What an incredible, incredible invitation that is to us. You know what? Some of you are going through a 
horrendous, horrendous stuff right now that hurts, that grieves you, that causes you to cry, that causes you to shed tears. Others of you are in the dying process. We're all in the dying process. Others of you have in recent days lost loved ones. God says, hey, there's coming a day in the very near future, guys, when you're going to experience a whole new kind of existence because He says, I make all things new. And, and, and so he, the angel has, has spoken and has declared, here's these things, there will be no more. Jesus steps up and He says, I make all things new. And then He interrupts this whole scene that's been going on. I mean, John has just been... Uh, can you imagine John, a first century guy, catapulted in time to see all of the stuff that he's seen in the book of Revelation? And now he's seeing this new heaven, this new earth. He's seeing this new Jerusalem coming down from God, adorned as a bride, prepared for her husband. And Wow! And right in the midst of all of that, God interrupts. And I want you to look at what he says. Look at the second part of verse 5. And he said unto me, Okay, now, he's made this declaration. I make all things new. And then he looks right at John. As he's beholding, as he's seeing all of these things. And he says, Write, for these words are true and faithful. What I'm about to tell you, John, you can go to the bank with. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you can bank on these words. They are just as sure as the fact that John was catapulted in time and got this revelation, has already seen all of these things. And, and, and he, he, he says to us, he, or John says, he said unto me, it is done. It's as good as done. It's over. I am Alpha and Omega. The, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He declares the beginning and the end. He says, yes, I'm the one that started this whole thing with man, and I'm the one that's going to end it all, and at this point, it's done. There'll be no more time. And watch watch this. This is incredible. God, in the midst of all of this, and all that John has seen, and what he's telling him to write, and declaring who he is, and the fact that this is sure, that you can bank on it, right in the midst of this, Jesus says, what I want you to write, John, he said, I want you to write an invitation to the thirsty. Because there's going to be a group of people that are going to be reading this someday. There's going to be a group of people that are going to be sitting in First Baptist Church in New Philadelphia one day. And some idiot's going to be up in front. And he's going to be preaching this. And they're going to be reading this. And the people are going to understand that this invitation was for them. Look at what he says. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We're talking about this new place that we have to dwell in, a new fellowship that we can have with God, a new kind of existence. And what God says right in the midst of all of that we're learning this morning is He says, listen, if you're thirsty, I'll give you of the water of life freely. What, do I, what am I going to have to do to get it? It's free. All you've got to do is just come to the one who is the water of life and humble yourself, recognizing there's nothing that you can do to gain it because it's free. 
and just calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. God's been making this invitation to the thirsty all through his book. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1, he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk. Listen, without money and without price. You know why it's without money and without price? It's because it's free if you want the water. All you got to have is thirst. Where you recognize that there is a spiritual vacuum on the inside of you that needs to be filled with the water of life. And he says, verse 2, Wherefore, why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? He said, why are you going through life trying to use all of these other ways to plug that vacuum? Don't you understand the reason that your, your soul is, is, is leading you down all these paths? is because there is a thirst on the inside of you. It is a thirst for the water of life. Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm asking you today, is there a thirst inside of you? As we're going through this today, are you understanding that you're separated from God because of your sin? There's spiritual death on the inside of you. And what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3, He says to you this morning, except you come to the place in your life where you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. I'm asking you this morning, are you thirsty? Right in the midst of all that He's declaring, He says, Write this. Write this, man, because this is faithful and true. Anybody that's thirsty, I'll give him that water freely. It, it can be yours. Verse 7, an invitation for those of us that do know him. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. We've been talking about this over the last several weeks. That yes, because we're in Christ, we're all going to inherit the kingdom in terms of entering it but in terms of inheriting the kingdom god wants every single one of us to have all of it to have every single every single thing that we saw depicted last sunday he wants us to be able to experience all of what eternal life can be and the difference is what we're doing in this life right now right now every single day of our life we are investing or divesting in eternity one or the other we're either putting something in it or we're yanking something out. And what he says is, you know what? If you overcome, and if you go back into the book of, of Joshua, what you see is that God brought them into the land. And then he said, now what I want you to do is I want you to overcome these enemies. And those enemies are the flesh. And what he's looking for, he says, listen, those of you that do know, you, you've... you've You've had that thirst quenched. You've got the, the river of life on the inside of you. You've received it freely. He says, now make sure that you overcome, that you inherit all things and have that incredible relationship with God that we were intended to have. But then, in the midst of all of this, there's also a major warning that he gives in verse 8, a warning to... The people who are not thirsty, the, the satisfied. 
The people that don't respond to God. And and he he says, look at verse 8, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And and what, what what he's saying here is, I'm giving you an invitation if you're here and you are thirsty. Come and take of the river of life freely. Have your part in eternal life. Have your part in this new Jerusalem with this new kind of existence where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no no more crying. Or, do understand that if you reject that, you will have your place in the lake of fire which burneth with brimstone forever and ever and ever. It's like God saying, now now which place would you like to spend eternity in? And I want you to notice, there's three groups of people that are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And I'm sure that there are all three types of these people in this room today. The first group of people he identifies is those who are fearful. You know what? Been around this thing long enough, and most of you have as well. We hear people all the time say, you know, man, I would, I'd become a Christian. I'm just, I'm just afraid of what the, the kids at school are going to say if I do. I'm afraid that they're going to think I'm a geek. I'm, I'm afraid they're going to think I'm a loser if I do that. I, I'm afraid that my husband's going to leave me if I become a Christian. I, I'm afraid my wife is going to leave me. I'm afraid it's going to mess up my home. I'm afraid my mom and dad are not going to understand because this is not the way they raised me. They didn't believe that and they didn't teach me that growing up. I, I'm just afraid it's going to cause a real rift in our family. I, I'm afraid I could never live that life and I'm just afraid that... And so what happens is a lot of believing people, listen, they believe. They're just fearful of what it would cost in in this life to receive Christ. And so, they spend an eternity in sorrow, in pain, in torment, in tears, separated from God because of the fact that they're fearful. The second group he talks about are the unbelieving. And who are they? You know what? I believe that unbelieving people, they got that way one of two ways, most of them. Either they were taught that very strongly from an early age because you know what? Everybody comes onto the face of this planet believing in God. You've got to be taught not to believe in God. And then there's another group of people that are unbelieving, and it's people who have entered into a level of sin to where there's a major guilt that they feel. And because they don't want to feel guilt, because we weren't designed by God to feel guilt, and we can't remove the guilt unless we remove God. And so I don't believe in God, but you're really lying to yourself. You don't like the guilt, and so you say you don't believe so that you don't have to deal with the guilt of that. And then there's a third group. And those, it's those who have pleasure 
in unrighteousness. In the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, it's a little passage there where it talks about the Antichrist and what's going to take place during the tribulation period. And what he talks about there is people who had the opportunity, just like every person in this room, every person under the sound of my voice, is had the opportunity to hear the truth and to receive it. But he says what some people do is because they have pleasure in unrighteousness, they reject that truth. And what they do in rejecting that truth is they lie to themselves. And because of that, God's going to send strong delusion. In other words, what God says is if you want to lie, then that's what you'll get. And it's people who have pleasure in unrighteousness. And he begins to list the, the, the different ways that that unrighteousness expresses itself in the human behavior, abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, he says, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, listen, which is the second death. Now, don't, don't pack up. Just, just listen real carefully. What the Bible teaches about this whole thing of the second death, if you just step back from it and you put all the little pieces together, one of the ways that we might express this to where you can understand it is, is this. The Bible teaches that if you are born twice, you die once. If you're born once, you'll die twice. Let me explain it to you real quickly. Jesus said, unless you that have been born physically, that's your first birth, come to the place to where you are born spiritually, born again, a second birth, you will have no part in everything that he's talking about here, the kingdom of heaven. You'll have no part in that. Born twice, if you are born again, you only die once. The Bible says it's appointed unto every man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And if you've received Jesus Christ through that second birth, you enter into this, this whole thing that we've been talking about today, the, the new Jerusalem. Okay? If you've been born physically into this world and you die having had one birth that's one death and you'll stand before God in judgment it'll be the great white throne judgment and then you'll be cast into hell and then the Bible says hell will be cast into the lake of fire and that's the second death born twice die once born once die twice and you know what? We're coming down to the end of the book of Revelation. God's spelling it out and saying, it could be this. You can have this kind of fellowship with me. You can dwell in this kind of place and have this kind of existence. Or you can have this one. But he says, listen, if you're thirsty, come. Come to the waters. And it can all change for you. Listen, if you're here today without Christ, this can be the day that it all changes for you. Because you come to Him who is the water of life. But now listen, if you're not thirsty, I don't have anything to say to you today. I do express great concern and great grief that if you can see all of these things, and I'm not trying to be a, a jerk with you, but if you can see all of these things and know what is in store in eternity, Flip that off. 
I just got to tell you, that, that, that does concern me greatly for your eternal destiny. Because I, 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 what, what goes through my mind is, what is, it, what is God going to have to do to reveal to you who He is and what He's trying to communicate to you when today He's saying, would you come? All of you who are thirsty, would you just come to be able to partake in everything that I've designed eternity for you to be? And as we're coming to a conclusion today, if you're here today and you're thirsty and you'd like to be a part of everything that God has promised in this passage today, it can happen for you today. And you know what? John wrote it. It is true and faithful. You can bank on it. And you can leave here today with that kind of deep down assurance, not based on me, you, but based on the authority of that book. And we invite you today if God's speaking to your heart, to respond. Let's bow our heads together. And those of you that are here today that don't know Christ, would you use this time right now to just determine what what you will do today? As I said, our pastors are going to be up on the front of this, this room, on either side of the front and right in the middle. And we're inviting you today, if you're thirsty, if you'd like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and have Him remove the barrier of sin that separates you from the Father today, that can happen for you. If you'll just come as our service is brought to a conclusion and just talk to one of these men, we'll have somebody that'll take a Bible and show you today how this can be the day of your salvation. Those of you that are believers in, in, in Christ today, Oh, Peter couldn't talk about this without saying, listen, what manner of people should we be in light of this? In light of everything that's, gonna, that's going on in the world around us, it's all going to be dissolved. And in light of the fact that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, what kind of difference should this make in our life? Maybe you need to use this as a time to confess sin that's begun to creep into your life or maybe a a misprioritization of the values of life. Would you ask God right now to help you to invest in that which is eternal? You know, Lord, this morning I do pray that you would help all of us to apply this passage the way that you you want us to. There are people in this room today that need to be born again, need to experience that second birth that will give to them this glorious privilege of experiencing the kind of existence and fellowship we've, we've read about from your word this morning. So, so Lord, please speak to their hearts. Father, draw them to Christ today so that Christ may bring them to you. Those of us that do know you, may the reality of these words and Peter's admonition be fulfilled in our ears and in our lives today. May it change the the people that we are. For your glory's sake.